All right, but now, now, if y'all would, please open up the Word of God to John chapter 8. We're going to read a few passages of Scripture. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a little preface here, um, a little preface that's needed for a note that you're going to have in your Bible, and then we're just going to dive into this story. And if you would, go ahead and stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. John chapter 8, I'm going to be reading in the English Standard Version of the Bible. We'll start in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus, as we, uh, gosh, as we've gotten to just stand here this morning, and uh, Lord, and the privilege of just asking ourselves, man, what would it be like if we really were looking at you, you know, tangibly? I know like the eyes of my heart are learning to see you better every day. I don't think my vision's 2020 in there yet, but Lord, I know you're getting it there. And I love, Lord, every, every new glimpse of you, every new thing I learn about your personality, your character, your goodness makes me, Father, it inevitably always has the exact same effect. I find it impossible not to love you more. But Lord, right now, right now, Father, as we're going to be reading in your word this story of, of just the way that you, you interacted, not just with a woman caught in adultery, not just with scribes and Pharisees and leaders of the law, and not just um, in such a way as to put this on display for all the spectators that would have been around. But, Father, like, you say this stuff to me. Man, Kurt, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And so, Lord, may, I, may you give us that, that incredible God-sized gift this morning of allowing the Word of God to jump off the pages and to take root in our hearts in such a way that it gets to be put on display in our lives when we leave. Father, may we not waste our time reading verses in your Bible that we do not intend to reenact. Stir us, Lord, in your name, for your glory. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Shoo. So this passage, John chapter 8, if you look... If you look at John 7, 53 to John 8, 11, a lot of your Bibles are going to have a note in them. And it will say, early manuscripts do not include this. And so I was looking at that and I'm like, oh man, that looks kind of heavy. I don't want to get into too much of that. And I've read a ton up on this and probably spent most of my time studying this week looking at that, that simple thought. And I want to kind of give you what it is the Lord's been teaching me through that little simple thought and give you an explanation because you're probably thinking, why is that in there? And the reason is, is because... In the earliest manuscripts that we have from God's Word, this section of Scripture either doesn't exist in John chapter 7, 53 to 8, 11, or it's in alternative places in the New Testament. Sometimes, one time it shows up in Luke, other times it shows up different places in John chapter 7, John chapter 8. But here's what I want you to know. So 
There's this whole thing that when I was diving into this this week, if you want to do a good Google search on it, you can end up in a, a rabbit hole that you'll never come out of. But when I was studying this, it, what, what it led me to, it was really sweet and really beautiful, is this, that when we look at the Word of God, we're looking at a book that was written over the course of like well over a millennia, 40 different authors, all these all these thoughts and all these different personalities getting to kind of add their pen to it and all of it having this one corporate message in this one singular voice, that being the voice of God, the voice of our Father. And the reason we can be confident in that, even when we see little notes like this, like, oh, man, okay, John chapter 8 wasn't in the early parts of the Bible. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Guys, do you know that the... The number two book in all of the world, the number two book as far as like textual criticism, that means like the manuscripts that we've gotten to find, has about 2,000 different pieces and chunks of manuscripts that they have from that book. And the earliest one that they found was 500 years after the book was written. The Bible, the New Testament alone, has over 24,000, and that number is always growing, getting up near 25,000 right now. And the earliest manuscript we have, they think, would have been dated 29 years after it was written. What that means is, is that this Bible, this New Testament that we're studying, this book of John even that we're diving into, that we are saying, man, I'm not just reading words on a page, I'm reading a word that claims to be living and active, and it proves itself every day in me. What we have is a book that, for all practical purposes, because the men who wrote these, these letters were not the kind of men that should have had books that would have been published and widely celebrated for all of human history. These are average guys that God came into the supernatural work in them and compelled them to write by his inspiration. And to prove that, he preserved his book so well, so well, that the second most preserved piece of literary history that we have on earth, the Bible, just the New Testament, has 12 times more manuscripts. So what that means is, out of 25,000 manuscripts, the earliest ones they found did not include this story. Later ones that they found did. By the time the Bible was canonized, which you can read all kinds of stuff, people say, oh man, people just picked pick those books and put them in there. Guys, when you read the story of God's work of preservation of his word, it's, it's unbelievable. And by the time the Bible was canonized, this was clearly the words that people had been using, that the church of Jesus Christ all over the world had been using as authoritative. So if you want to dive into some more study of that, textual criticism is a cool word to put into Google sometime and just kind of see what pops up. But I would say as we study this, just know, John chapter 7, verses 53 to 811, clearly work within the personality of what we know Jesus to be. They clearly fit with the character of God as it's displayed in his word. And so that is the reason that I'm, I just wanted to give you a little preface. If you see that footnote in your Bible, I wanted to give you explanation for it and didn't want you to think I was skipping past that. But now let's dive into the story. First thing I want us to notice is how Jesus is different. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, then he comes back to the temple. And the one thing that I noticed that was so unique, there's Jesus goes out and does one thing, and the religious leaders go out and do another. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. 
Last time I preached a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this, that you see these habits in the life of Christ. You see him habitually getting alone, getting to a place where there's no distraction, everything's out of the way. It's just him and his father. He does this not, this is not like some isolated event where it's like, oh man, Jesus really needed an answer to prayer. So he went to the Mount of Olives. It's no, no, I just, I just miss my dad. I don't want any distraction from me spending time with my father. And he regularly and habitually goes to get alone with his father. I know a few weeks ago when I talked about this, I said it's wild because when you read, does anybody in here love missionary biographies? I know it's a strange request. Okay, I've got a few of them. Actually, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. If you love missionary biography, if you're one of the people without your hand up, find one of the people with their hand raised and go ask them what the number one missionary biography you should start with is because it will rock your world and change your life. Um, about eight years ago, I almost got to move to India to actually teach a seminary class on missionary biography. My buddy Guna asked me to do that, and I was, oh, I would have loved it because I love reading the stories of these men and women that gave up everything for Jesus. And the thing that I love so much about those stories is the repetition. You get in there, and it's, it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's, wait, this person gave everything to Jesus when nobody was looking, and later on, everybody started looking. This person regularly got alone with God and knew him in a way that was so personal that no attack from the outside could affect their intimacy. Over and over again, it's they got away to places to be alone with God. This is true of Jesus. And guys, his hope and his heart is that it will be true of you. And the way that stands apart in this story is really, really striking because Jesus goes to pray and the religious leaders go to find a sinner. Okay, so they go out and they find this woman. Now, I want you to know there's a, a little bit of a preface that's happened in chapter 7 that makes this make sense. The next two weeks, we're going to be spending time. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about the way that Jesus dealt with people caught up in habitual sin. And next week is going to be, it's actually National Opioid Sunday. Ooh, which sounds kind of weird, but what that means is we're going to be talking about awareness of what's going on, especially, guys, for us in Kentucky, which is the assault of the enemy through the use of drug addiction. You know, right now, my, my mom's side of the family is from Pike County, all right, or Pike County, as it should be appropriately pronounced. And in, in the Pikeville Hospital right now, they released this in their, in their newspaper. They showed this to me when I visited them last time. In the Pikeville Hospital, 70% of the babies that are born are born detoxing from a drug. Seven out of ten. And guys, this is something that's just wreaking havoc. You know, and this is just one of those more prolific sins that's easier to see. And next week we're going to be talking about the effects of sin. We're going to get to hear from a good friend of ours named Rob Perez, who is an unbelievable man of God who started a restaurant called Saw Good. And then here in the last couple of years started another restaurant called Deviate Kitchen. And uh, if you've not been to Deviate, it is, uh, it is your homework to go before you meet him next week. Deviate Kitchen, right off of Broadway. It's fantastic. And the purpose and cause behind it is even more incredible. Now, what happened right before this? Right before this in chapter 7, we see an interaction between Jesus and some police officers. Okay? Now, at this point, the religious leaders were not just leaders in the church, and were leaders in the synagogue. They were leaders of everything. They were political leaders. They were leaders of the Jewish people. And what they did was they kind of had some police that were in their back pocket. These are their officers. That's what they're called in the Bible. And in chapter 7, they sent some of their officers 
to go and arrest Jesus. They didn't like what he was saying. And the officers go to arrest him. Okay, so I want you to imagine this scene. Jesus is teaching. He's sharing. And suddenly, suddenly some police officers show up. And it's clear that they're with intent. They're there with intent. You know, I I don't think they literally used handcuffs at the time, but whatever their equivalent was, they were there ready to arrest Jesus. And they stop. And they listen for a little bit. And then they leave. And they come back to the religious leaders and they said, where is he? Why didn't you bring Jesus back? And they said, Nobody talks like this man. And the beauty of the way that he shared convinced them, we, we can't lay a hand on him. We can't arrest this man. And the religious leaders got so mad because when they said no one ever spoke like this man, what they were saying is, you guys don't talk like him. When he shares about God, he's saying different things than you are. And the things that he says have power that your words don't. And if you want to make a Pharisee mad, oh, just try to take away his pulpit, okay? And that's what happened. And so these men, these men are angry. Even their police officers stop responding to them, even after they've paid them. And they said, we got to do something. And so they want to catch him in the act. They want to make it... They want to make it clear to everybody around that we have to arrest this man because he just said something heretical. And so what they do is they, in the middle of him teaching a group of people that have gathered around them, they come in with a question. And they drag in a woman that says was caught in the very act of adultery. Now here's something interesting because what what happens is they, they come in and they say, we caught this woman in the very act Moses says, Stone her. What do you say? They're trying to catch him. Because they want him, they want him to pick one of these in such a way that at least half the crowd comes against him and gets mad, and they can just kind of like raise up some angst against Jesus. And they say, What do you say? Moses says one thing. Do will you have the audacity to disagree with Moses? Here's something you need to know. They weren't wrong. This is important. As we look at a passage like this, it's really easy to see this from the lens of the New Testament and say, man, no, God would never let that happen. But guys, Leviticus 20.10 is very clear that there is a price tag on the sin of adultery in the Old Covenant, and that price tag is death. And it is death by stoning. But there's something in that passage that they kind of left out. Leviticus 20.10 says that if someone is caught in the act of adultery... The adulterer and the adulteress should be brought before the people and stoned. You notice something in here, in this passage? Do we have two people caught in the act? We got one. So already, already they are talking about the law as they're disobeying it. Do you see this? Like it's clear. The word of God exists for nothing but exploitation for them. Now, I say that, and we think, ooh, those Pharisees and scribes, how could they? But when I look at that story, as when, I, when I read this, i I, I got to be honest. I, I see myself a lot in the woman. You know, that this woman who's caught and just feels completely overcome and overwhelmed and helpless against her sin, and Jesus comes in with a grace that outweighs it all. I love seeing myself as the woman in this story. It ends well for her. 
But to be honest, I'm just as often I'm the scribes and Pharisees. And this willingness to exploit the word of God for their own benefit, to use the truth and the beauty of God's word to their own advantage. My mom always says, uh, and my mom is like the, the queen of one-liners. She's got all these great little one-liners that she always told us, my sister and I growing up. And one thing that she always told us, she said, it's more important to be righteous than it is to be right. And so many times we can get those confused. It's like in an argument. I found myself doing this in a theological argument or something. I remember I was in Bible college at Campbellsville University when I was like 20 years old. And when I was in Bible college, people would have all these debates and discussions. And they would just bring things up. We would end up like supporting beliefs that we didn't actually believe just so we could argue. Have you all ever done this? And if you haven't done this, you've at least got that friend that you know does this. You know who I'm talking about. You probably unfollowed on Facebook recently. You're like, I just can't take it anymore. So, like, I, I was that guy for a while. We'd get in these discussions, and it was like, you just wanted to win the argument. Didn't care if you're actually supporting the truth and the beauty of God's word. I just wanted to win. And I realized there's this tendency in me that sometimes I'd rather be right than be righteous. And if you see that in yourself, like I sometimes see that in myself, don't just call that out as, well, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't want to win arguments all the time. Just, no, no. It is important to call that what it is. You are becoming a Pharisee, and you are in danger of exploiting the Word of God instead of acknowledging its beauty and living it out. Because sometimes winning for eternity will mean losing an argument. All right? So, caught in the very act. They've disregarded the law at least a little bit because what they do is they, don't even, they never even mention the man that was caught in adultery. I don't know if he was one of their friends. I don't know if this whole thing was set up. I don't know how this all works and what the preface was to get her to this moment where she's in front of a group of people. I don't know. Some, some versions say that she, was, that she would have been completely um, disrobed, that she would have been naked out there in public. I'm not sure if that would have been the case in that culture or not. But either way, this is a moment of a more intense shame than maybe any of us could imagine. And what does Jesus do in response? This is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever does in the Word of God. Jesus doodles. Okay. Doodles. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, there's this moment. There's this moment, right, where she's caught in the act of adultery. Moses says this, what do you say? And how does Jesus respond? Just like this. Just like not even looking up. He's looking down at the ground, doodling in the dirt. If you, start, if you start to kind of study this out, lots of people have varying opinions. Some people say he was down on the ground with his head down because he was so uncomfortable there was a naked woman there. He was just trying to guard his heart. That was literally one of the pastor's responses I read. I was like, I just, I, no, how about no? How about no on that one, you know? Some people say that he was writing down their sins one by one of all the Pharisees that were around. Maybe. The truth is the Word of God doesn't tell us. If it doesn't tell us something, that's because, really, it's, it's not important to the story. And what we do know, what we do know is that whatever Jesus was doing was aggravating the religious leaders. And that he did it long enough that they had to speak up and say, hey, we're asking you something. So the one lesson that I caught from this as I was reading, I was like, you know what? Sometimes it's right to be rude. Sometimes it's just okay. 
Now, do not apply this by going to the Mexican restaurant after church and being unkind to your waiter or waitress. All right, that is not the proper application. But sometimes, sometimes when somebody is acting in such a way that you know is dishonoring God, it's important to be rude. It is important to sometimes do things that may look a little bit offensive. Remember one time I was struggling because I had to was a worship pastor for a while at a church and. Sometimes I'd have to like have these awkward, awkward conversations. I'm in my mid-20s, and there'd be like one time I had to have a conversation about the way someone in the worship band dressed. And I was like, oh, gosh, like with a, a woman who was twice my age. And I'm like, I, I don't want to have this conversation. And I, would, I just hated being what I thought was rude or offensive to people. And one day I was sitting in my truck just waiting to go inside to have an awkward conversation about something in ministry. And I was like, Lord, I don't want to have to talk about this. And I just felt like the Lord whispered to me. I've told you all sometimes thoughts pass through my mind that are far more intelligent than my common thought, and then I blame God for them. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden this thought passes through my mind. Kurt, I spent the entirety of my ministry offending people. I just made sure to always offend the right ones. And guys, if you're going to be a man or you're going to be a woman that imitates the life of Jesus, you are going to offend people. You're going to be rude sometimes. You're going to hurt people's feelings. But you're always going to do it in love. Always going to do it in love. Because every interaction we see between Jesus and the teachers of the law, you know what is motivating him to say offensive things? You know what is motivating him when his angst is rising up and he sometimes even responds in anger? It's his love. Everything he ever did, compelled by love. Let him who is without sin Cast the first stone. Because this one sentence sermon, I mean, it, whew, it's something I know I need to hear every day of my life. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I said as I was reading through this and thinking on it and pondering it, the thought that passed in my head is, you know what, like, Christianity at its roots admits this one thing. We have nothing unless we have Jesus. We have nothing. Like I'm, there is nothing in me that is righteous without him. There's nothing in me that is any different from what that woman deserved sitting there 10 minutes after being caught in the act of adultery than what I deserve every waking and sleeping moment of my life. And you know what? It's true of you too. Because there's something in this thought, let him who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. There's a, there's a beautiful lesson here that really kind of does sum up everything about what we're going to learn really in the, in the entirety of the life of Christ. And the ultimate conclusion that we're going to be coming to comes from this one simple thought. Do you realize that there's only been one person that ever lived who under Jesus' criteria could have thrown a stone at her? It was Jesus. And so he says, the only ones who deserve to throw stones at this woman are the ones who are sinless. And it just so happens that that statement would only apply to one person that ever lived in all of human history. And it also just so happens that that one person that under Jesus' criteria could ever throw a stone was standing there. And you know what he did? He didn't throw a stone. And guys, this, man, this thought, this, 
the truth is, as I studied this passage, I kind of kept coming back to the same place. I was like, you know what? Like, Lord, it's going to be the same lesson in the next part of John chapter 8 and in John 9 and 10 and 11 and on and so on and so forth. And if we do an Old Testament passage, it's going to be the same lesson. And if we do an epistle, it's going to be the same lesson. And if we ever get brave enough to actually try to preach through the book of Revelation one day, it's all going to be the exact same lesson. It's that that man who should have thrown a stone at you didn't. That's it. Every story that we read, it's going to have a different twist to it. There's going to be a different narrative wrapped around it, but it's the same lesson. Guys, it's the same lesson that you and I should all be bloody in the middle of a crowded area, ashamed because of what we've done and the way we've broken his heart. And that happened in a crowded place, bloodied, because of the consequence of our sin. Someone did get stoned to death. Someone did get beaten with an inch of a knife. Someone did get crucified. And the thing about this, and props to Andrew as we were talking about this this week, he said, you know, the cool thing is, Kurt, like, Jesus, in essence, what we don't see it in the story, he waited a long time after this story finished, but when that woman got up to leave, he got in her place. And he let them all come back and pick their stones up and stone him instead so that she could walk free. When they walk away, Jesus Jesus asked her, he said, hey, woman, where are they? Where are the ones who condemned you? And she said, they're, they're gone. There's, there's no one, Lord. No one condemns me. And he said two things. And I think in the middle of this is the, the response that I want to invite us into before I have Stephen Terry come back up to get to sing and lead us in a little bit more time of praise. The simple response of Jesus he says, neither do I condemn you, but now go and sin no more. This phrase right here, these, these two thoughts, in my mind, they almost kind of disagree with each other. You've got, I don't condemn you, now go and never sin again. Like, what? Jesus, that seems a little intense. That's a little much to ask, you know? I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. And I realize what, what we see here is we find this perfect blend of grace and truth, of love and justice. I find in my own heart, people have told me this because I, I dealt most of my life with a, under kind of the weight of condemnation. I don't know why I struggle with like just feeling condemned for, for my sin, feeling less than, kind of struggling to really believe that the things that God says about me are true. I don't know why that is. I know some people, a lot of, I've got friends who I'm accountable with, and they, they tell me they struggle on the other side. They get way they were way more impressed with themselves than they should be, you know. And I think we all kind of are going to fall somewhere in that, on that pendulum. But I find that because I'm grace heavy, sometimes I just, I love the neither do I. Oh, if they don't condemn you, neither do I. And I can just camp out in that like, yeah, Lord, you don't condemn me. I'm free to go. I can do whatever the heck I want. You know, like that's, and sometimes that ends up being the unfortunate response from an excess or an exploitation of freedom. But then he says, go and sin no more. I find some of my friends that are like really truth heavy, they love that, like go and sin no more, like want to focus on that. And Jesus is both. He's both of these things.
And that's important. That's important because I, I find that with my, with my love and appreciation of the grace of God, I want to make sure that I do not outrun the truth behind His grace. Because there is no such thing. There is yet to be, in 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, there is yet to be the first Christian that does not hate sin. That's a big statement. There's yet to be the first Christian that does not hate sin. Now what that means is, that calls us to something pretty intense. If you're a Christian that doesn't feel like you hate your sin, you might want to check on the first part of that sentence and ask the Lord, God, am I, do I really know you? Because to fall in love with Jesus means to fall into hate of all the things that break his heart. To fall in love with Jesus means to have, to have a heart that is completely wrecked by anything that is separating you from him. Now, I don't say this to you all. I say this to us because there are still times in my life, still those times where I, man, I just, I just want to kind of grip my teeth. I want to just rebel for a little bit. And I know, I know in those moments, that's when his grace comes in and whispers to me, hey, Kurt. You know, I've only called you to give up sin because I want to replace it with something better. So that's my call to us. That's my call to us today. If you really believe that the only man that ever lived that could have rightfully threw a a stone, that not only did he not throw a stone, but he took the consequence of that woman's sin. He took the consequence of your sin and of mine and of everything that was ever going to be done that deserved death and deserved separation from him. And he stole it from you. And he stole it from me. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I learned that verse when I was six years old, Moana. <laughs> Moana was this program we had at my church back in the day. And I had to learn it to get merit badges. It's kind of like it's kind of like doing scouts, except we didn't have really good cookies. You just got merit badges. Yeah, it was probably really lame, but I, I loved it. And I, I remember I memorized that verse, and you'd work on them and repeat them over and over again. And it's one of those that I, and it's now been in my head for almost thirty years. And I, I find I appreciate it more today than I did when I was six. And I appreciate it a lot more today than I did last year. And I trust that thirty-six-year-old Kurt is going to cherish that truth a lot more than I do right now. But the wages of my sin. The right payment and the proper exchange rate for my sin was death. And instead of death, he gave me life. We're going to sing for a little bit. And as we do, I'm going to, I'm going to invite you guys. I'm going to invite you to pray a dangerous prayer. If you would just bow your head with me for a second. Here's what I want us to pray. I really just want you to pray one thing, one simple thing. If you're somebody in here and, and man, we, I'm talking about this, this Jesus and the way that he uh, interacts with a woman caught in adultery naked in the middle of a field back 2,000 years ago, and you're like, what on earth does this have to do with my life? If you've never met him, then I, man, I've got the best news in the world for you. You can go to God and ask him, ask him for something really, really simple. Say, God, let me know you. 
let me know you. Let me know the beauty of the story that that man is telling up there on that stage. That you came to this earth. You came to this earth because you knew that the consequences of all the sins that had been committed and would ever be committed, including mine, were going to result in eternal separation from us and you. You died in my place. If you don't know him, just simply ask him, God, let me know you. And that starts with repentance. And repentance starts with a simple, simple truth. And it starts with this prayer, God, teach me to hate my sin. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to pray. Pray and invite God. Ask Him, Lord, teach me to hate my sin. If you're somebody in here and, and you're a brand new believer, maybe you've just been walking with the Lord for a little bit, and this might seem like a really depressing prayer, but I promise you it's the kind of prayer that is going to bear so much fruit on the other side. You're going to be delighted for all eternity that you prayed it because this prayer on the other side of hating your sin is loving righteousness. So just ask Him, Lord, teach me to hate my sin. Maybe you're somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you've been a little bit of a drought and a rut. It's the same thing for us, guys. Say, Lord, let me hate my sin the way you hate my sin so that in its place I can learn to love your righteousness.